Amen. I will get the order of service right eventually again. Seems to be one of those things. Over the last few weeks, we've begun our sermon series uh, on Luke chapter 15, exploring what these three parables of Jesus revealed to us of our Heavenly Father. And we've seen that Father God is like a seeking and has a, loves with a seeking and prodigal love. For in the example of the woman and the shepherd, we see a God who seeks us out so as to rescue us from our lostness because we are that precious to God. And then in the example of the father and the lost son, we see a God who loves with such extravagant patience and such reckless generosity that he is truly to be called the prodigal one. In his love, he shows his prodigal love and waiting. This week, I want to attempt to respond to one question that can arise in our minds in response to these parables. And indeed, the question can arise in response to any number of passages or come to us amidst the various events of life. And the question is this, can God really be this good? You may even want to shorten it to, is God good? After seeing and hearing about a good heavenly father through these parables, a father who loves with a seeking and prodigal love such that he patiently waits for us, is it truly possible to hold on to such a view of our heavenly father when all around us we see a terribly broken world with so much pain and hardship? Is it possible to hold the tension between the goodness of God and the suffering in the world? It is a question that people have asked across the ages, indeed one that Christians have asked across the centuries. For many of our New Testament letters and Gospels were written amidst periods of great suffering, particularly persecution. It can be helpful to remember that the authors of the New Testament were not only seeking to share the good news of the Christian faith or teach us how to live godly lives. Those very same authors were often seeking to help the church at large understand how to hold the tension between belief in a good heavenly Father who loves with a seeking and prodigal love, whilst at the same time experiencing brutal treatment, and even death for their faith in Jesus Christ. Unlikely, this question, this tension, is one which many, if not all of us, have wrestled with or are still wrestling with. Indeed, I suspect that few of us ever really settle this issue fully. And instead, we are forced by the repeated hardships of life to reevaluate where we have got to in our handling of the tension. And I phrase it that way quite deliberately where we have got to in the handling of the tension. Because to say we should or can reach an answer or a conclusion on the issue seems to me to be unlikely, maybe even unhelpful. Four years ago, my family went through some very difficult times, which I won't share today because I don't want it to be the, the focus of our attention. 
But shortly after those difficult experiences, we, we met someone who we knew and they knew what had happened and we hadn't seen them in a, a little while. But in that, that brief conversation they had with us, I think they were seeking to give us a measure of encouragement and support or comfort. But what they said was anything but that, to be honest. Because, and as I quote, to, to tell us, God only lets these things happen to people he knows can handle them, end quote, is not particularly helpful or pastorally sensitive, and it's not my top tip for you if you're going to support someone through hard times. So don't try it, please. To claim to have answers to these questions is, in my experience, very unhelpful. Sure, we all want answers, as I was saying with the children, and I want answers. I'm just not certain God gives that many answers on these particular issues. Yet what that person shared was probably out of where they are at with the handling of the tension between belief in a good God and the very apparent hardships of life. And likewise, what you'll get from me today is born out of my four years of wrestling with the issues in light of the Scriptures and represents some of where I have got to in my own thinking. But most likely, as the years pass, my thinking will adapt, hopefully mature, with the passing of time and gaining of experience in pastoral ministry. So all that, five or six minutes, was, was introduction, really, and setting the scene. And I promise not to be overly long. But is it possible to hold the tension between the goodness of God and the suffering in the world? For myself... I think I have managed to reach a point where I can live with that tension. And I can do it because of what the Scriptures teach about the Christian faith. Firstly, the Scriptures clearly face up to the reality of suffering in our world. And the Christian faith has always done so. Indeed, the Apostle Paul never hides the fact, and often he goes as far as to highlight it. We read today in Romans 8, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Here, Paul highlights that all of creation groans in its current state, that it yearns to be liberated from its bondage to decay. When Greek speakers, as Paul was, talked about decay, they were referring to the tendency of living things to become sick, tired, or die, but also included the inevitable process by which material objects collapsed and food spoiled. So the, the biblical tradition affirms the perspective that our world is broken, that it is not what it once was or should be, that it is not what God intended it to be. But Paul is also aware that it is not only the wider creation which groans, we groan. We human beings groan. We groan to be free 
of the degeneration, sickness, and health we see around us or experience. And this groaning is there just as much for Christian folk. For Paul affirms, we ourselves groan. We are not exempt from problems or sadness or disappointment. So the Scriptures clearly face up to a broken world and the reality of suffering and our innate yearning to be liberated from that. There is then no belittling of our experiences. There is no British tradition of a stiff upper lip. There's no exhortation to that. There is no encouragement towards a faith that either ignores these hardships by sticking one's head in the sand, nor towards a faith that is so spiritually minded that it glosses over the difficult times. The Christian faith is not scared to admit that the world is a mess, yet it also affirms the continued validity of faith of being able to somehow hold the tension between the goodness of God and the suffering we see around us. The ability to hold that tension is, I think, possible because of two incredible facets of the Christian faith. The first is we have hope. Not wishful thinking, but real, genuine hope. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings do not compare with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. In the Christian faith, we have hope. Specifically, we have hope that this is not the end, that God hasn't given up, that God hasn't been defeated, but that more is in store. And what is in store is that there is a glory which will be revealed in us, There is a freedom and glory for the children of God, and there is a future adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And these phrases are worth unpacking a little. When Paul speaks of glory here, as he does a couple of times, and quite a lot in the chapter, we need to remind ourselves of what else he has associated glory with in the letter to the Romans. He has associated glory with God's immortality with the immortality of those to whom God gives eternal life, with the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. So in all these ways, Paul associates glory with the expectation of sharing in the resurrection life of Jesus and so his immortality. Elsewhere, Paul writes in Philippians, but our citizenship is in heaven, And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. When Paul speaks of glory in Romans 8, this is what he has in mind. 
of a glory which will come to us from outside and transform us personally such that it is revealed in us in our physical resurrected bodies. Paul also writes in the third bullet point there of our future adoption to sonship that we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. This is not to say that we aren't children of God already, because we are, and Paul has affirmed that earlier in the chapter in verses 16 and 17. But there is a sense in which our adoption is also in the future because we don't experience now the fullness of what God has won for us and that our bodies still decay. In that sense, our salvation and redemption are still something we are waiting for, even if we have the first fruits of it now. So in all this, Paul affirms the hope the Christian has, the hope they have received when they place their faith in Jesus, that the suffering and injustice which we experience will one day give way to God's recreated world. And in that new creation, there will no longer grow weakness. We will no longer fall apart. We will no longer die but live in immortality. Moreover, God will also release the world around us from the effects of sin, and so both we and the world will be free from all suffering. In that new creation, our existence will be like that of Jesus Himself, who presently lives in immortality and in perfect fellowship with Father God. So whilst the suffering in our world currently obscures the glory which is ours, that glory will one day be revealed in full. But in the meantime, we hope. We hope for what we do not yet have. We hope, we wait with expectation for a future in which every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the present order of things will have passed away. This hope is part of what helps me to hold attention when faced with the realities of this world and my own life, that our God is truly good because He hasn't left us or deserted us. He hasn't been defeated. Instead, He has secured for us a future that is beyond our present comprehension, a future that is good. And God has secured that through His works and especially the person and works of His Son. Let's begin with the works of God, Paul writes. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Many of us will know that first sentence quite well and may have found comfort in its words for our own lives. But I'll be honest with you, until this week, I could quite easily have scrubbed them out of the Bible. I did not particularly find them very comforting over the last four years of my life. Probably because I read more into them than may well be there. And so often I think we, we understand those words to say that maybe God orchestrates our suffering or that God brings good out of the sufferings of life, that He is working all things together for good. 
But that phrase, working things all together for good, is really to be rejected on translation grounds, on scriptural grounds. Biblical scholar John Stott wrote, the rendering of those words is to be rejected, since all things do not automatically work themselves together into a pattern of good. And so, I think it might be helpful to review what Paul could be saying here. Let's unpack a few of the key words in that first sentence. God works for the good. What is the good? Well, in the context of the passage, the good is the glory which God has prepared for us, the glory in which we hope. That final future, that new creation where we shall share in the resurrection life of Jesus with glorified bodies in a perfect new heaven and new earth, that is the good which Paul means. That is the purpose which God has for uh, those who love Him, who are part of the people of God. And if that is the good, then what are the works which God does? In all things, God works for the good. Well, the works are the actions of God which create, sustain, or bring His people into the glory He has provided. And so we read, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. These are the works of God. Coupled with what Paul has said earlier in verses 26 and 27, that God has given His Spirit to help us in our weakness. He has given us the Spirit to sustain us through the times of suffering and ensure that one day we will reach the glory in which we currently hope. And so, if that is the works of God which bring about the good He has planned and provided, then to say that God in all things works is to say that in all things, in in the midst of all things, in the midst of all circumstances and times of difficulty, God is at work. But His works are to help and sustain, to comfort and see us through into the glory He has purposed for us. That is how God works in all things. So, it need not mean and may not mean that God orchestrates your suffering or that He will work all things together for good. I hear that line so often. Someone popped around the other week, not one of you, just someone outside of the congregation and, and parish, and they have had the most difficult things in, the, in recent years. But she's quick to add, I can't remember her exact words, but the, the line effectively was, but God orchestrated it. God intended it. He's testing me. No, not in this rendering, not in this understanding. Because I think we have overreached with this verse too much. We've minimalized so much suffering by our overreaching with this verse. And we possibly overreach because, like I said to the children, we want an answer to the why. 
We don't like the tension and the unresolved questions. But in our seeking to resolve it, we go too far, unnecessarily too far, because our hope is not undermined, and God's purpose is not defeated. His works are not thwarted. His love remains strong and sure despite the tensions, despite the questions, and all because of what we read next in Paul's writing. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In the four years of my wrestling, with the tension of believing in a good heavenly Father, yet experiencing the reality of the world, the cross. The cross is what has got me through. That on the cross, God died in the person of His Son for love of me, to secure a glory beyond anything I can imagine, and so guarantee, as David prayed, to reunite us with those I have lost. That foundational truth has got me through has allowed me to hold the tension because in the cross, I know that God is for me. And in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, I know with certainty that God has won a sweeping victory, that we are more than mere conquerors over sin and death and decay, that none of these will prevail against the purposes of God because of our Savior. In the cross of Jesus, I see a God who is concerned with our suffering, is concerned with our plight, such that He did something about it. He sought us out, as the parables of Jesus affirm. He died to reconcile us to Himself, securing us a place in His family, that one day we will be conformed to the image of His Son, to His likeness, the Son who is glorified and immortal. Is it possible to hold the tension between the goodness of God and the suffering in life? Is God truly as good as the parables of Jesus portray? I've managed to reach a point where I can live with that tension because I see in our faith a God who knows our suffering, who cares about our suffering, who never minimizes our suffering. And so he did something about it in Jesus. He entered into our suffering. And so in Jesus, I see the love of God, and I find a hope given to me by God of a future glory. To him be the praise and honor this day and forever. Amen.